I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today in the show, I'm joined by bow hunting legend and world champion tournament archer, Randy Ulmer, to discuss everything you need to know to take your archery accuracy and effectiveness to the next level. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today we're kicking off shooting month. All this month of July, we're going to be chatting with the best bow hunters and shooters in the world about different ways to improve our accuracy and effectiveness, both with a bow and with a firearm, all with the goal of making this next season our very best to date. No more misses, no more shanked shots or wounded deer. I'm sick of it. I bet you're sick of it too. This is going to be the year that we can all take a significant step towards becoming a better shot than ever before. That's my goal. And today, we're going to kick things off in about the best possible way that I can think of with Randy Almer. He's on the show with me and Tony today. If you're not familiar with Randy, he is a longtime outdoor writer and television personality. He's a world champion tournament archer and one of the very most regarded and most successful bow hunters in the country, if, if not the world. He's truly one of the best there's ever been, and I'm thrilled that he was willing to join us today to dive deep into all things archery. Today's episode, it's, it's really a masterclass, I gotta say, for taking your archery skills to the next level. We cover some of the most important gear upgrades to improve your accuracy, and whether or not gear is really all that important these days when it comes to accuracy. We cover uh, target panic. We cover buck fever. We talk about the keys to improving your archery form, Randy's step-by-step shot process, 
a series of in-depth instructions for creating a perfect archery practice regimen, and a whole lot more. I mean, this is without a doubt one of the very best podcasts we've ever done about archery and the skills necessary to become a more effective bow hunter. So sit back and get ready to be inspired to grab that bow and hit the range because that's at least what it did to me. I mean, I was fired up to get out there and do some shooting. So I hope you feel the same way and I hope you enjoy this one. Here we go. All right, here with me and Tony on the line, we have the one and only Randy Almer. Randy, thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. We are we're excited for this one. We've got a new series kicking off this month. It's all about shooting, all about taking our you know skill set with a bow or a firearm to that next level. And I don't think there's anyone else we could kick this off that who'd be better at this to help us talk about these topics than you, Randy. So uh, the pressure's on though because you're you're leading us off. Can you can you can you carry that banner <laughs> keep for us? Your expectations low. Okay. Uh, from everything I've seen of yours, read of yours, heard of yours, I don't think we're uh, we're going to be in trouble of of missing expectations. But I got to ask you this, Randy. I kind of want to start with a low point, with a missed expectation. This is what I'm curious about. Can you remember over the course of your illustrious hunting and archery career, is there any moment in your past that you can remember some kind of breaking point or some kind of fork in the road, low moment where you said to yourself, I got to fix this, or I got to get better at this, or I got to crank this up to a new level when it comes to your shooting. Has there ever been that moment where you had that conversation? Well, how many hours do we have? (laughs) Uh, Yes, always. It's the thing um, about archery. It's a lot like golf. Uh, you can never perfect it, and and you have always got to be working on on issues that you have. Um, and if if anyone ever tells you any professional archer or any really good shot tells you that they don't have any issues, uh, uh, they're lying to you because um, it's it's a constant constant struggle. Yeah. Can you can you think of any specific example or story of one of those moments that you could could share with us? Both like what that what that incident or moment was that kind of caught you or shook you, and then what you did to try to address it. Is there anything that stands out over the years? You bet. Um, and I'll just I'll just start with the most recent one. Last year, um, I had to have last spring, not this this spring, but the the spring before. Uh, 2021, I, I had to have cataract surgery and they didn't get my eyes quite right. And my right eye, uh, was the worst. Well, I, um, uh, my first hunt was a deer hunt, uh, in Colorado in the high country. And we backpacked in about seven miles and, um, this deer lived in the in 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 cliffs like goat cliffs and just about the toughest country you could imagine and i had snuck up on this deer several times uh you know within a couple hundred yards and he was just never in a place where i could get up through the cliffs or the wind wasn't right uh about the fourth day i was able to get into position and i i had a good shot it was 50 yard broadside shot and i pulled back my bow and was pretty steady and I shot well I missed the buck 
about 20 feet to the left. And I had, and he ran off obviously. And I had absolutely no idea what had happened. So I thought, you know, maybe my arrow had come off the arrow rest. Maybe my arrow was bent, something. I uh, didn't think much about it other than I was very disappointed. Um, it was the last night that we could, the last day we could stay in. I had to have, I had to go back to, to uh, Arizona to, to uh, get some things done. And the hike out, we, we got out about three o'clock in the morning and, and I had to drive home that night. And, and I just thought about it, thought about it, thought about it. Couldn't think why I missed. Um, sometimes things just go wrong and you really don't know why. Mm-hmm. Well, fast forward, um, I had an Arizona elk tag and, and there had been a bull that I knew about uh, for a couple of years in the unit I got drawn. And we couldn't find the bull. And my son and I climbed up to the top of this giant mountain. Uh, where we could glass for three or four miles in every direction. And we finally found the bull. Uh, long story short, about three or four days later, I was able to get on the bull. And again, it was a, is a easy shot. Well, it should have been an easy shot. It was 40, 40 yard shot broadside. He didn't know I was there. And I shot and I missed him about 15 feet to the left. And he ran off. And all of a sudden I thought, wow, this, something's going on. Well, what I did not realize is in the heat of the moment, I'd practiced all summer with my bad right eye and, and, and I I was able to shoot, but what I didn't realize is both of these shots were in low light. Uh, and what I didn't realize is in the heat of the moment, my left eye had taken over and I was actually sighting with my left eye. And that's why I had missed 20 feet, 15 feet to the left. And I'm sitting there. I actually sat on the ground. It was it was raining in Arizona and I was sitting on the ground and all of a sudden it dawned on me what had happened. And so I I I always keep some duct tape on my walking sticks. And so I unrolled some of the duct tape. I made a little patch that I attached to my hat for my left eye so that when I drew back, um, I couldn't see through my left eye when I was at full draw and it blocked my left eye's vision. And the bull didn't know really what happened. It was lightning and raining when I shot and, and he just ran off. And, and, uh, so I, I thought I knew which group of trees he was in, uh, several hundred yards away. So, I, I waited there and, and that later that evening, um, I heard him bugle and I snuck in and I wasn't a hundred percent sure that it was my eyes, but I was pretty sure. But anyway, I snuck in as, as absolutely close as I could. Well, I ended up sneaking into about 10 yards and, uh, and I, and I shot him and, 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 uh, it, it turned out that that was what the issue was. So, um, yeah, you're kind of always trying to figure out what, what's going wrong and why. And, and with our archery, archery, just like golf, there's just so many mental and, and physical as well as equipment issues that it's just a constant battle. Mm-hmm. So, so Randy, can I, on that at first encounter with that high country buck, when you missed that far or missed by that much, I'm, I'm assuming you went and shot. And when you shot, you know, 
target practice, you didn't have that adrenaline going and your eye didn't, you know, your non-dominant eye didn't take over. So did you just kind of get to a point where you're like, this had to be just an anomaly with, with my gear? Yeah, somehow? exactly. Well, cause I had been literally climbing through cliffs and, and brush. There's a lot of brush in the cliffs and I'd been dragging my bow. Plus I'd backpacked it in. Um, so, you know, I thought, well, you know, maybe the air arrest, uh, maybe the, the, maybe the, what I really thought happened is that the arrow had, had not come up with the air arrest cause I missed by so far. Yep. And so, you know, you kind of have to just let it go. Otherwise, you know, it's going to affect your confidence on the next shot. So yeah, I shot, I shot a lot between the, the deer season and the elk season and never had an issue. Cause you know, I'm one of those fair weather practicers. I always practice when I'm hunting in the middle of the day when, you know, there's plenty of sunshine and, and, uh, and, you know, it's not raining, nothing's going wrong. And, and, uh, and so when I practice in the middle of the day, I was just fine. I was completely confident until I missed that elk at, at 15 feet, uh, or, or missed him by 15 feet at 40 yards. Then I knew something was wrong. Uh, so just ballpark it for us quick. How many big game animals have you shot with archery tackle, Randy? Oh boy. I, I have no idea. Uh, I've been hunting for 45 years with the bow, so I don't know. couple hundred, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yet you still had a situation where shooting, you know, no pressure target practice, you were dead on, and then something happened to you in the excitement of the moment where you changed, you, you know, you changed your shot process in a way that probably, like, if I, we would have told you that beforehand, you'd be like, no way would I do that. But it still well, happens. No, exactly. And And the thing is, is, is in the heat of the moment is when everything goes wrong. Um, and, and that's why I, I kind of changes the subject a little bit. That's why I discourage people from shooting long distance shots because you'll get a false sense of confidence at the range or in your backyard. Um, I, I like to tell people that, and, and, and for me personally, I think my effective range in the field in, in, in true hunting conditions, especially in the West, uh, may not be true so much for whitetail hunters, but for hunting in the West, um, in true hunting conditions where you're hanging from the side of a mountain, uh, the wind's blowing, could be raining, and your adrenaline's all kicked up, I think your uh, effective range is about half what it is uh, at the shooting range or in your backyard. So I, I can consistently hit, you know, a, a, a vitals of a deer at 120 yards. Well, that's with, you know, with with no wind, no nothing, sitting in my backyard, warmed up, very comfortable. Um, and so, but I will not shoot um, at game past 60 yards. That's my dead stop limit. Yeah. I think this is a, this is a really good place to start with, a, with a lot of what I was wondering about, because I think a lot of folks, you know, coming into the new year, or maybe even they'll have this kind of moment in season, but they'll have this realization that like, I've got a problem or I'm not doing this well enough or something's not quite right or I know I can do better. But that next step of figuring out like what's the thing I need to do to get better is a lot harder. Like how you diagnose what your problem is, like what your issue is or where your opportunities for improvement are. So, Randy, like what's your what's either your process or your recommendation for someone else to go about trying to diagnose like what your issue is or what your weak spots are so that then you can start addressing them how do you figure that problem out 
Well, I've had just about every problem there is to have. So most of the time I've had the issue before just because I've been doing it so long. But the the for you end up having a lot more problems early on in your archery career uh, than you do later because later you've kind of figured most things out and and uh, when things start going wrong you go, oh I, I've seen this before but what I really encourage um, beginners to do is if they're having a problem and if you live in a place that you know is big enough or it has somebody that that can coach you most of the time they'll be able to figure out your problem very very quickly and that's one of the reluctance bow hunters have uh is to get somebody to actually watch them or, or coach them um and most bow hunters most people that are not target shooters or not 3d shooters that just primarily bow hunt have a lot of issues that they don't even know they have and and that's the other thing i'll say is, is you have to be honest with yourself um, and once you've addressed the problem, be honest with yourself and, and do what you actually need to do to make it better. And while we're on that, the, the, the main problem most people have is, is not having a surprise release. Uh, they punch the release, uh, or they have target panic. And, and if you punch a release or you have target panic, uh, and just so some of the listeners that don't know what target panic is, is, oh, it's a whole plethora of conditions. It's it's a lot of different psychological conditions uh, kind of placed under one roof. And and the most common uh, the most common manifestation of target panic is that you can't put the pin on the spot or the place you want to hit on a deer and squeeze the trigger. You have to kind of um, do a flyby or a drive-by shooting. Um, and then punching the trigger is something that most people have that are bow hunters that don't realize. And the problem with this is just like my situation, the more stressful, the more high pressure the situation is, the more likely that those conditions are going to manifest themselves. And that's why people get so frustrated because you know, they can sit and, and uh, they can get in their tree stand and they can hit a deer size vitals over and over and over again at 30 or 40 yards in practice. But when a deer comes, uh, comes by, the in, intense pressure will cause their, their, you know, their subconscious issues to manifest themselves. Yeah. So main thing is get somebody to help you. And uh, the second is, is just um try to stay focused when you're making that important shot otherwise again um on those important shots is where your problems are going to manifest themselves yeah so, <clears throat> randy do you think you know when you talk about this you know there's obvious benefits to shooting with somebody who really knows what they're doing watching you for your form and your execution but you know most people when they're sitting up in a tree stand and they shoot at a buck you know nobody's watching and, you know, you said something a little bit ago about being really honest with yourself. Do you think a lot of people are a little bit too dismissive of their misses and don't really reverse engineer them in the field to try to figure out what actually went wrong? Because you, you know how it is. You hear the same excuses, you know, over and over. Use the wrong pin, hit a twig, you know, jump the string, whatever. But we know that a lot of it is just a mental meltdown. Yeah, and until you 
you know, and, and I discovered this when I started competing years and years ago is um, I found that a lot of my competitors and myself originally uh, had issues and it's, you get into this comfort, you get into this comfortable groove where you like doing things the same way. And, you know, and again, you like it to any sport. If you have a, a, a bad swing in baseball, um, you have to fix that swing if you're going to be a, a, a great baseball player. Um, and again, those things manifest themselves. Those bad problems manifest themselves always under, under uh, stressful conditions. So you just you, you have to be honest with yourself and say, oh, this is my problem. I've got to figure out a solution and you have to take it all the way back to the source of the problem before you can truly fix it. And, and one of the things I did when I was competing so much is I would write down my problem. Okay. Let's say it's punching the trigger. Um, and then I would say, okay, here's what I'm going to do during this practice session. I'm going to focus completely on this practice session on fixing that problem. And what most people do when they practice is they just go out and, and fling arrows and they don't actually work on anything. Um, in order to get better, you have to work on the things that you have issues with. And that's where a coach comes in because they'll identify your problems and they'll give you a program to fix it. And most individuals just won't go through that multi-step process to solve their issues. Mm-hmm. So if I, I, I think, I might be wrong on this, but if I had to break down the different types of problems that might be impacting our archery accuracy, I feel like there's a bucket that could be, you know, process or form related. There could be a bucket that could be like the mental game, target panic, punching the trigger, like that mental meltdown stuff Tony mentioned. And then the other bucket might be just like your gear and your setup and getting that stuff right or wrong. Um, I want to address all three, but since you brought it up as the most common, let's start with the mental side, the target panic side. Um, that's something that I personally have been dealing with. And this year I'm trying to break everything down and rebuild again to really finally not put a bandaid on it, but, but, but replace the, put get a full organ transplant, new thing that's going to finally break through this barrier I've had. Uh, when you hear about somebody having those problems, in my case, it's rushing the shot. And, and like as soon as the pin's on the vitals, man, it's re- it's usually gone. The, the arrow's usually sent. So that's what I've been dealing with. And like you mentioned, there's a lot of different ways this manifests. But when you talk to somebody who's having problems with that target panic, rushing the shot, punching the trigger, whatever it might be, uh, once you recognize that's the issue, this is this has been diagnosed, okay, now now what? What's What do you do or what do you recommend someone do to start addressing that, both you know, what the simple fix is and then how do you actually practice that enough or do it enough that it becomes part of your being? Well, first of all, it, it, listen, it's, it's like having a disease and you really need a doctor to help you get rid of that disease mm-hmm. um, because um, you're going to, if you don't know how to fix the disease, you're going to be putting duct tape and chewing gum and bar and bailing wire on it. And it's not ever going to be fixed. You have to go all the way to the root of the psychological problem. And, and almost all of those things can be, um, all the things you mentioned are kind of lumped under target panic, um, 
because really the complete lack of target panic would be being able to put your pin on the spot you want to hit and squeezing the trigger and having a surprise release. So if you can't do that, I'll just put that all under the umbrella of target panic. And target panic, uh, there's many different methods people have used or tried to use to get rid of target panic. I have one particular method that I like to use, and it's been very, very successful. Um, and I've had, and 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 what it involves with me is 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 uh, during the off season, not during the hunting season, but during the off season, um, switching to a a hinge or a back tension style release. It's a surprise release, and shooting with your eyes closed for a long period of time uh, until you get ready until until you've actually until you're actually able to have a surprise release without any of that weird tension that you build up in your shot process. And once you've done that, uh, you start shooting with your eyes open and then you slowly back up. And anytime you start feeling that, that tension, that anticipation, that, that, uh, feeling of panic, uh, then you have to, to back up a step and start over again until you're able to, uh, execute a shot. And then it, it, it goes further. And I've actually never had what I would say was even close to full time target panic, but yet it's always there in the background for every shooter. And that's why all year long, I practice with a hinge release. Um, and then when it actually comes time to hunt, I, I typically hunt with a, 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 uh, index finger release. And I always carry a hinge in my pocket in case I have a long time to shoot. Like, let's say there's a buck bedded down. Uh, I'll actually use the hinge because it just keeps you completely honest because you can't, you can't cheat it. And, and once you've learned to shoot a hinge properly, it trains your subconscious, your unconscious, your brain to, to squeeze through the shot. So, uh, even, and, and once you've got that muscle memory and you, you, you trained your brain to actually squeeze through a shot, it will translate even into the most high pressure shot situations. And I've had several people that were really ready to give up. Uh, well, I'll mention Dwight Chu since you guys know him and Dwight is passive a few years ago, but Dwight had such a, such an issue that uh he was missing game and, and relatively easy shots and and he came to me and we spent quite a bit of time and and dwight got to the point where he was willing to hunt with a hinge release even though obviously a hinge release is not the best hunting release because if an animal's moving or you need to make a quick shot you really can't very well but he was willing to to take that gamble just in order to be able to make a good shot most of the time. And, and he, and, and until the end of his life, he continued to hunt with the hinge release. And I've got several other people that I've worked with that, that, that do the same thing. So on the topic of releases, uh, would your recommendation for most people then be to, to train with something like that, but then jump back to, uh, an index finger or a thumb button, or do you have a, do you have a recommendation on what the actual infield best option would be if you are you know jumping back and forth between the two yeah i actually go you, I, you can use a thumb button the thumb button is just a little less likely you're a little less likely to have target panic or 
uh, punch the trigger with the thumb button. You can certainly do it, and a lot of people do uh, have issues with the thumb button, but uh, especially if you're shooting a, a hinge, because they're both handheld releases. And for some reason, psychologically, it's much easier to yank the trigger or punch the trigger with your index finger than it is pushing with your thumb. Because with the thumb button release, you can kind of, you can, you can shoot a release such as that more like a, a, a hinge release because you can kind of lay the web of your thumb over the trigger and then just squeeze with your hand and the release will go off and it'll be more of a surprise release. But if you get to where you can shoot a hinge release very well, very comfortably, and not have any hint of target panic, what I do is even when I'm out hunting and I shoot my practice shots in camp, I will actually use a hinge for my practice shots. Because what you're doing is you're forcing your subconscious mind and your muscle memory to hold that pin in position until the release goes off as, as a surprise. And, you, and you're much less likely to punch, you're much less likely to peak, and you're much less likely to have all those issues that are going to cause you to miss in a high-pressure situation. Yeah. So, Randy, let's take into account here, you know, the people listening to this are probably, you know, almost all primarily white tail hunters who are using index finger style releases. Uh, they, you know, a lot of them aren't going to go buy a hinge and use it. What, what would you tell them? What, is there anything they can do that crowd can do to get a little bit better at this for the surprise release? Um, not without a lot of discipline. Uh, it's, it's, it, once you've got the issue of punching the trigger, uh, like Tony said, that he's dealing with once you've got that it is so hard to get with rid of unless you go way back um and go to the beginning and then practice a lot you know and you can get a, a good because hinge releases aren't complicated the the very simple ones and you, and you can get a good hinge release for not that much money and to have that in your tackle box and and use it exclusively that's where the discipline comes in is because it's so much more comfortable and so much easier to shoot a trigger release. But once you've learned to use the hinge release, you will um, you will be so glad you did. So if you're serious, you know, if you're not serious about your accuracy, then no big deal. But if you're truly serious about making your really good shots in the clutch, um, I would practice with a hinge release almost exclusively. And, 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 and there's a little bit of a learning curve. So you, you, I always encourage people to do start shooting a hinge release with their eyes closed up close to the bale uh, right after the hunting season ends and just get in the wintertime maybe and, and just get really, really comfortable with it. So when they're ready to go outside and, and, and or you know, start shooting targets, they are very, very comfortable with the whole function of the hinge release. So before we move on from this, Randy, what, how closely related, because you keep talking about target panic, and I, I guarantee you there's a bunch of white tail hunters who have it who don't know it. How closely Absolutely. is yeah, how close is that uh, relation to buck fever, in your opinion? It's, well, buck fever, okay, buck fever is just getting really, really, really excited and hurrying everything. And how they're related is that the hurrying everything is where, where the issue comes in. Um, what happened? 
most people would define target panic as something where you cannot, they wouldn't consider punching the trigger target panic. And I kind of group them under the same umbrella because they're both psychological issues. But buck fever is just getting really excited and, and we all get it. And for me, what it is, is just incredible anticipation that, you know, you've got this big buck right there and you want him so bad and you just want it all over with really quickly because the anticipation and the excitement um, is so overwhelming. You just want that arrow gone because you're afraid something's going to happen and the buck's going to run off and you're not going to get your shot. So you hurry the shot. What you have to do is tell yourself that, yeah, the buck might run away, but but you're much more likely to miss him. if you don't take your time and squeeze the trigger. Um, I know that I've screwed up if I don't remember what happened during the shot process. And, you know, the arrow's gone and you don't even know why. If I could remember every part of the shot process on a big buck, uh, that means that I actually had a surprise release and I followed through. Yeah. I got to believe there's a lot of folks who can't do that, what you just described remember every part of that process i mean i can tell you myself most of my shots it's it even as i've tried to get better at this i still fall into an autopilot and my autopilot historically has been better the last couple of years but i still couldn't tell you all right i remember anchoring i remember doing this i remember thinking i remember that no usually it's that train gets on the tracks and it's going so that's that's been been a problem one place what the animals i have shot with the hinge release i can remember everything because when you have that hinge release in your hand, you realize that you have to, I call it staying with the shot. You have to stay with the shot through the very end. Uh, it's, it's very strong psychologically. And knowing that you, you're on the animal, the pins on the animal, your subconscious knows that you have to stay, stay with the shot. And what it does is it causes you to aim better because you're focused, 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 because you don't know when that release is going to go off. And I can almost guarantee you, if you shoot something with, if you shoot an animal with a hinge release, you're going to remember the whole shot process. So speaking of releases, then that being one of these tools that that you know you have a lot of belief in and being able to help you, one of the things I was curious about would be if someone was wanting to address accuracy, somebody wanted to level up, and they were going to look at the gear side of things, and they weren't necessarily wanting to get more speed or more penetration or something like that it was simply more accuracy what's the one gear category like the one bucket of stuff you would look at addressing first would it be the release or is it the bow itself or broadheads or arrows or what would be that category that you think is the the most impactful if someone were to start oh by far now 25 years ago 30 years ago I would have said, you know, it's 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 a big part of it's the equipment. The equipment nowadays, if you've had your bow set up by someone that knows what they're doing, the equipment is is so good nowadays, so good that the vast majority of accuracy issues are with the shooter. I can I can you can take almost any bow off the shelf, a decent bow and put good accessories on it now. And bows are, are so well engineered now um, that 
that the bow is probably not a big part of the issue unless something's happened to to it uh, it's gone out of tune that sort of thing but uh, the bows and arrows and all the equipment nowadays are so good so if you want to be a better shooter uh you're not going to do that by buying a new bow um you know unless your bow is over 10 years old you're going to do that by working on yourself and that's where most people want to buy their way to to accuracy and it just it just doesn't matter. You can take a really good shooter with a really crappy, a, a very cheap bow uh, nowadays, and they're going to be incredibly accurate. So I would say as long as you, you know, you know your your bow is shooting well, and, and you can do that by going to your local pro shop and, and having them look at you shoot and, you know, shooting it through paper and make sure everything's good um, and make sure all the bolts are tight, of course, and there's nothing loose. And as long as is as the bow shooting good uh i'd say the equipment's 10 percent. the shooter's 90 percent. what about like uh matching arrows to your bow or weights and, and anything like that there's a whole lot of talk these days about you know different arrow setups heavier this more front of center it's a very trendy thing in the last few years to dive further and further down that road how important is that for people do do we need to go really really deep into that and obsess over that or to your no, point, is it? No, absolutely not. Um, you can, I, again, I can take a good shooter and get a bow, an arrow that's that has really almost no front of center, and an arrow that is not really even spined well to the bow, and he's still going to shoot very, very well. Um, it's not nearly as critical now. If you, most of that stuff comes from Western hunters that are shooting a hundred yards, and it does make a difference because, you know, the Olympic shooters or uh, competitive compound bow shooters that are shooting long distances, you know, front of center is going to make a difference. But it, it's front of center and the stiffness of the arrow. And and I'm into all of that stuff. Don't get me wrong. And I've written about all of it. And I've talked about all of it. Um, but that's taking you to a point of diminishing returns. That's when you're already completely... <sighs> well-versed at shooting form and discipline of the release that all of that stuff will make the difference. Let's say you can shoot, let's say you can shoot a 10 inch group at a hundred yards and you know, you would just a regular setup and, and I'm, that's a very, very, very incredibly good shooter. You start working on front of center, uh, different stiffnesses of arrow you know, you might be able to get down to an eight or a seven inch group. That's what that stuff's for. It's for the elite shooter that really knows what they're doing. For the average whitetail hunter, it doesn't matter much at all. Now, it matters a little bit. I don't want somebody to say that he, he said it doesn't matter. It matters, but it, it, it's so much more important that you're able to put the pin on the target, squeeze the trigger, not interfere with the bow. That's the problem most people have. You take the average bow you would buy at a bow shop right now, or even if you were to go to a big box store, buy an average bow, put it in a shooting machine after it's been tuned, and it is going to hit, you know, it's going to shoot a two to three inch group at 50 yards. The issue is the shooter. People interfere with the bow. They interfere with how that bow shoots the arrow. They torque it, they yank the trigger, they they have interference with the bowstring on their face. They do all these things to interfere with how that bow shoots the shot. 
The only thing good form does is it makes sure that you allow the bow to shoot the shot without interference. That's it. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This, this, this is my way of bull saying. If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more 
at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Let's talk about form. So that if that's really the foundation that's going to allow our gear to actually perform as well as it can, how do we make sure our form is as good as possible? I know there's a million videos out there and there's a million articles that talk through all the different aspects of good archery form. Uh, but, but could you walk us through the Randy Almer take on, you know, whether you want to walk us through the, the foundational elements of it, or if it's more interesting to you, just maybe break down the big problem areas you see most often. Um, I'd love to just kind of get your take on how we can establish better form and consistency. Okay, the thing to remember about form is with archery, you can be an incredibly good shot and you can have really bad form as long as you do everything exactly the same way every time. And there's some shooters, just like some, just like some golfers that have really radical swings that are still really good. That's because they do they're able to do everything exactly the same way every time. Good form, what I would call good form, is merely increasing the odds that you can repeat from shot to shot to shot. So really, obviously, the the, the, the most basic part of form is having a good foundation. But unfortunately, and when I say that, I'm talking about stance, foot, foot placement, Unfortunately, most of the times, at least when I'm shooting, I'm either on my knees or I'm, I'm leaning around a tree or the wind's blowing uh, or, I, you know, you're on uneven terrain. The nice thing about whitetail hunters is usually they've got a good, solid foundation to shoot from. And a lot of whitetail shooters will try to stand up to shoot, but some shoot from sitting down. And if you do shoot from sitting down, obviously you need to work on your form, but really the foundation is just the bottom part. The foundation allows your upper body, which is the critical part to not be wiggling. Um, As long as you can have good T form with your upper portion. And what I mean by good T form is that your your torso, your spine is relatively vertical and your bow arm and your release arm are in the form of a T. Um, and, you know, you're, you, everything, the, the more aligned your body is with the bow, the less likely you are to interfere with the bow. And what I mean by that is if, if, if you were well let's start with the handle of the bow because that's the one place that most people have the issue is how they put their hand into the bow you have to be able to put your hand in the bow consistently and the best way to have a consistent shot process from shot to shot to shot is to have bone on bone contact now if you if you'll take your middle finger and put it uh, it's too bad this isn't visual, but basically what you want is you want the bow, the pressure of your hand on the bow to be in the bottom part of your palm, where if you were to follow the two long bones of your forearm, the radius and the ulna, if you were to pretend you had a a a rod that went perfectly parallel to those two bones, 
and and came out in the bottom of your palm, that's where you want all the pressure on your bow handle. Because that way you don't have to use any muscles to control the bow. And you won't torque the bow from left to right. So pretend you had no thumb, no fingers, no hand, other than the 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 end of your forearm where it comes out on your palm. You could put a bow right there. And if you were holding the bow correctly, that bow would not fall off at that point. That's what you're trying to do. And you want, want no pressures from your finger or your thumb because what happens is as soon as the string is released, the bow will start rotating whichever way you have pressure on it. So pretend you have no hand and all the pressure is straight down your forearm. That's what you want because it's very repeatable and it will never change from shot to shot. The next thing is you need to have your release hand and your release elbow to have a perfectly straight alignment with the arrow. So if you were standing straight above a shooter and you were to look down the arrow and then you were to look down their forearm and their hand all the way to the tip of their elbow, it would be a perfectly straight line. A lot of people will break that line by bending their their wrist or by bending their hand in some way. You don't want to do that. You want it to be in a perfectly straight line because the the and the best way to do that is just to completely relax everything. Because if you completely relax everything, it's going to become an it's going to go into alignment. If your elbow is to the left or to the right of that line, small changes in the position of your elbow is going to have a major effect on the the forces that uh, that that are created. If your elbow is perfectly in line, you can have your elbow off a quarter or a half an inch either way, and it's going to have very little effect on where that arrow goes. Another very important form, and you guys can jump in anytime if you have a question, because I'm kind of going just down the line. That's great. I'm loving it. Again, again, your entire goal is to let the bow shoot the shot. Don't make the bow shoot the shot. People create tension, and that tension interferes with the bow shooting the shot. If you don't interfere with the bow, the string at all, and you, you, you contact the bow, well, you should only contact the bow in two places, at the string where you've got the release attached and, 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 and your bow hand. If those can be completely relaxed and everything in alignment, the arrow is going to hit exactly where the pin is. If you take a shot and the arrow hits somewhere other than where the pin was, once the bow sighted in, obviously, and the arrow hits anywhere other than where the pin was, it means that you interfered with that bow and you have to figure out why. One of the most common places that people are going to interfere with the bow is once we've eliminated hand torque in the front, the other place that they're going to interfere with the bow is contact with their face or clothing. But the main thing is the face. Um, what you'll see people do is, is for the last 30 years since people have gone away from shooting with their fingers um, and people started using peeps, there's one bit of dogma that has stuck 
in the archery industry, and I don't really understand why. And that's that you have to have a rock solid anchor point. And, and what that causes people to do is really dig into their face with their hand and the string. And what happens is you get chin drag or nose drag and people will press the string so hard into their face that the string actually has for a right-handed string shooter, the string actually has to come out around their face to the right, dragging their skin and it will make them hit to the left. So if you have inexplicable right or left shots, it's usually either from hand torque or from face interference. What I like to tell people is just have a baby breath touch of their string to their face or to the tip of their nose. Again, not interfering with the bow. So the string, once the release is, is, is triggered, the string has no interference moving forward. Again, you're letting the bow shoot the shot instead of making the bow shoot the shot. So really good form is extremely simple. Um, it's just doing everything the same way every time. And the best way to do that is really to watch video of the very top pro shooters. They'll almost all have the exact same form. And that's the form that's proven to be most repeatable. And that form is standing up straight, no stress in the face. You want the bow, you want the string. When you pull a bow back, you want the string to come to your face. Okay, if you're standing, if you're standing like you're going to shoot your bow, but you do not have a bow in your hand, you're standing and your feet are actually, most people, their feet will be the tip of their toes. If you were to, to lay an arrow down at the tip of their toes, uh, the arrow would be pointing pretty much straight at the target. So you're, you're, you're at a 90 degree angle to the target. And what you want to do with your head is you want to stand there completely relaxed, looking straight forward. And then you want to turn your head for a right-handed shooter. You're turning your head 90 degrees to the left and just as comfortable as can be. When you pull your bow back, you do not want to move your head or your face. You want it to be in a completely perfect position, perfectly relaxed position. Most people will pull back their bow. Most, most people that aren't really, really good shooters will pull back their bow and then they'll move their face and bring their face into the bow. And, and that's not relaxed. You'll see them cocking their head down or cocking their head up or cocking their head further to the left or the right. You want your head to be in a perfectly straight up and down, relaxed spine, relaxed neck position and, and looking at the target. And when you draw the bow, the bow will come to your face and you're not manipulating your face to put it into the bow. What you're seeking with good shooting form is complete complete relaxation. You want bone upon bone. You want everything to be resting upon bone. Obviously, it takes some muscular contraction to, to hold the bow back and up. You want that to be as minimal as possible. I've got a quick question when it comes to you know the face and the anchor points. And you know, as you mentioned, it's been drilled into us so much about the importance of those anchor points. And your point about the possible chin drag or nose drag is is well taken. I'm curious what you think about some of these anchor um, anchor point tools, stuff like a kisser button or more recently like the nose buttons that are becoming popular. 
Are either one of those good ways to still have an anchor point, but have that lighter no, like like you said, like a very very light anchor point? Is that a good way to do it, or do you think those are not all that useful? You know, I've never been a fan of kisser buttons. Uh, now, if you kisser buttons came around when there were no peeps, okay, I, I can take my bow and I can shoot my normal way with just the. The, my tip of my nose on the string and just a whisper baby's breath touch of this of the of the string on my chin i can shoot then i can take my bow and i can i can pull it further forward from my face so i actually have to kind of tip my head a little bit and if i'm completely relaxed and i'm looking through my peep and it's lined up with uh, the spot I'm trying to hit, it will hit in the exactly same in the exact same spot because I'm not interfering with the bow. So again, the the more things you have touching your face, the more you're interfering with your bow. That that really, the peep sight is your anchor point. If your bow is complete, if you're if you are completely relaxed, you if you are completely relaxed. And your your bow arm and your release arm are completely relaxed and in alignment with the bow. You do not have to have an anchor point. You can just look through the peep and shoot. Now, I'm not advocating that. I'm just telling you that to, to illustrate a point that a solid anchor is absolutely not necessary. Now, a solid anchor, a solid anchor is not necessary, but again, in order to be as consistent as possible, you need to repeat. So a light anchor is plenty. All you have to do is just do it the exact same way every time. What happens is when people hear the word solid anchor, they feel like they got to dig their hand into their, into, their, into their jawbone. And what happens is you'll notice if you dig your hand into your jawbone, what will happen is it will break your wrist. And what I mean by that is your wrist won't be in a straight line because you can do it right now just 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 while you're sitting there if you take your hand and let's say what they what people tend to tell you to do with a hand held release is to put those first two knuckles of your of your of your fist against your jawbone say against the back of your jawbone and push it there and that's going to get you in the same anchor point every time but when you do and you push it in hard, what you're going to notice is it's going to break your release. Your release is no, your, I mean, your wrist, your wrist is no longer in a straight line. It's very important, in my opinion, to keep your wrist in a straight line as possible. Because whenever you break the line of force, if you break that line of force and you change it, say a half an inch from shot to shot, it's going to affect the lefts and rights on your arrow. However, if you relax your release completely and relax your wrist completely and, and maintain that just that very light touch of your, of your knuckles to your face, not digging into your bone to get that solid, but just relax it, all of a sudden you'll see that your wrist becomes straight because everything is relaxed. And the more relaxed you are, the more consistent you're going to be and the, the less likely you are to interfere with the bow. Because what's happening is, is everything is just hanging. I like to imagine my, my bow arm, excuse me, my release arm from the tip of my elbow all the way through my fingers to be like a rubber band that just stretches out. And the more it stretches out, 
the more relaxed it is, the more consistent it's, it's going to be because you're not using any muscles. Whenever you incorporate muscles into the shooting routine, the more muscles you incorporate, the easier it is to change from shot to shot. If everything is totally relaxed, the less likely things are to change from shot to shot. Yeah. When you bring up the issue of consistency and, and all this of the anchor points and everything, the, the next thing that came to mind for me was how our consistency is, as whitetail hunters changes when we try to perfect all this form you're talking about in the backyard, but then all of a sudden we're in a tree at an elevated position 99% of the time, and all of a sudden now well, things start getting wonky. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's why, that's why your house has a roof. You, 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 <laughs> yeah. You, no, seriously. You, you, you either, you know, you either put a tree stand up in your backyard at your shooting range. And, and the key is, you know, most of the time, let's say you're, let's say you're 15 feet up in a tree. Um, and you're shooting say 20 yards. Well, you're shooting downhill fairly uh, a fair bit. What I've found is to use extreme practice. And when you can use extreme practice, the the less extreme the average let's say the average what's what's your average tree stand height 20 feet yeah i'd say 18 to 22 feet yeah okay so so and your average shot is going to be 25 or 30 yards i i'm guessing Mm -hmm. okay well okay now now i don't have i don't have any way of calculating that that angle right now but the angle is not severe but it's it's significant so what i do is like I'm in Colorado right now, and just outside my archery room door is a a 37 degree slope, which is n- nearly a cliff. I mean, it's hard walking up it. And at the top of that is 90 yards away is a target, and I shoot my arrows up, and then I shoot my arrows down, and that's a very very significant angle. But the reason I do such an extreme angle, I, you know, you're very rarely going to have a shot like that in real life. But what it does is it teaches me in extreme what what I'm doing wrong and why typically when I'm shooting uphill and for right-hander shooters, this is most often when you're shooting uphill, you're going to miss to the left. When you're shooting downhill, you're going to miss to the right. Um, not true for everybody, but but on average. So what I would encourage you to do is is put a tree stand up in your yard if you have a tree or at the range, you know, 30 feet up. And then shoot at a target 15 yards from the base of the tree. And what that's going to do is it's going to exaggerate all the issues that you have. And you've got to remember to do it standing up and sitting down because obviously it's, it's going to change your form. And, and when you're shooting at such a severe angle like that, your misses are going to be more significant and they're going to be more significant missing to the left. Um, and what you have to do is teach yourself and and this again this is you can look online videos shooting uphill and downhill i have some stuff online and a lot of other people do but what you'll find is that uh the more you practice in it in extremes the more likely you are to to identify your problems and then and then be able to resolve them if you shoot like let's say you only climb up 10 feet in a tree stand and you're shooting 30 yards away, you're not really practicing any extreme. It's, it's, it's almost as easy to shoot that shot as it is a shot on flat ground. So practice extremes. 
And and while we're talking about shooting, you guys always shoot downhill. I'm I'm shooting ha- uphill half the time when you know in in the west in the really rough terrain. Mm-hmm. But you guys just need to learn how to shoot downhill. And the main thing to remember is to maintain that T form shooting. What what a lot of people do and and it causes problems is rather than bending at the waist and and keeping that T form where your spine is perpendicular to both of your arms at full draw, what they tend to do is they tend to stand more straight up and just lower the left arm, which completely changes your shooting form and it completely interferes with with the bow shooting the shot. Yeah. And it does there's a different feeling too when you when you try to focus on, you know, swiveling at the hip the proper way. If you don't mm-hmm. do that enough, you can feel different muscles being activated and it can be harder to get comfortable if you don't practice that a lot. I remember early well, on. You when, that, it's just really hard for you to relax. And yeah. the key to shooting a really good shot is is to be a, as relaxed as possible at full draw. And if, if you're tweaking your muscles while you're trying to do that, um, it can be very uncomfortable and you're, and you're more likely to interfere with the bow. Yeah. I want to I talk practice now but i guess before before we jump to that tony do you have any other form specific stuff before we shift into how we make form a part of who we are with practice um i think no the only two things i would say is i've never fake drawn my bow as much as i have in the last hour (laughs) and i've never faced the reality of how much bullshit i've written in my life that's probably wrong (laughs) as far as how to be an accurate shooter so this is making me question everything randy well, yeah, now, and, and I need to put this caveat out there that just because I'm saying it, the one thing, the one reason I was so successful as a competitive archer is I didn't, I always questioned dogma. The one thing that you have to remember is there's a lot of dogma in the archery world, and everybody wants you to shoot exactly the way they shoot. Um, and that's not always going to work for you. You do have to, you do have to question yourself though. And you can't assume that the way you do things is the right way. And when someone like me is, you know, is, is, is beating on their chest and saying, this is the way you have to do it. This is the way that works for most people. It may not be the way works best for you, but it goes back to being honest with yourself. If to do things the way you've always done, it is the easiest solution but if you truly want to get better, you have to experiment. And I did a great deal of experiment, experimenting when I was seriously trying to be better as a competitive shooter to see. And there were a lot of things that were dogmatic that 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 I challenged and I did differently. And, and, and since that time, a lot of those things have become dogma. So, again, what you saying that, uh, you know, you're doing everything wrong because I say it's wrong, um, you know don't believe every person that proclaims they're a guru out there. There's a lot of stuff on the internet that just horrifies me. Well, can we talk about something quick then? Mark, I know you want to move on to practice, but there's something I always think about uh, with, you know, and it's different in your world, Randy, because you're, you're, you're doing so much Western stuff and, you know, up and down terrain, just a different kind of hunt than a, than a typical whitetail hunt. But one thing I know about you, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I, I met you at that Peterson's bow hunting meeting or dinner we had at ATA in like 2006 or something. And yeah. you were, you were talking about uh, a couple of the really big mule deer you had killed that year. And I remember you saying, I think maybe it was your Colorado buck that year, 
but saying that you had spent like 50 days scouting that deer. And I just remember thinking, holy cow, like how familiar is this guy with this animal? And, you know, so throughout this conversation, we've been talking about form and, you know, blank bale shooting and all of these kind of like fundamental technical things that make you a better shot. But you also work really hard to get a familiarity with these animals you're hunting. And I think people kind of take it for granted that you're this amazing shooter and you kill a lot of big stuff. But there's that sort of piece in the middle that we don't talk about much, which is you putting yourself around these animals, probably to get a comfort level that most, you know, average hunters couldn't even understand. Well, I, yeah, and that's a completely different podcast. I mean, that's, that's just even to touch on that's just going to take a long time, but yes. Uh, and that's, you know, if, if you guys want to move in that direction, we certainly can. Um, but again, that's kind of a different podcast. Yes, I spend, a, you know, I'll spend literally 30 nights out on the mountain, you know, sleeping on the ground uh, because it's what I enjoy. I've, I've fortunately over the years been able to put myself in a position where I have a lot of time in the summer. I do most all my work. Um, I work in the summer, but I, 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 I'm able to get out and at least 30 to 40 days every summer scouting and mule deer is kind of my you know, it used to be elk, but I've really gotten into mule deer. So, and, and, and yes, and, and most of that time is spent just trying to find that one deer that I want to take, but, but the, the, the take home point on, on, on me spending that much time is when you spend that much time looking for one deer, um, and you get an opportunity at that deer, and this is the same, this translates completely for whitetail hunters. You know, you've got your trail cameras out there. You know, there's one deer out there that that's the deer you want to kill. And you're, you know, you're doing your food plots, you're doing your scouting, you're putting up your tree stands, you're doing all this, this preparation. You guys do as much preparation as I do. It's just mostly done in the middle of the day. Um, but you've got all this preparation and it all comes together. Your whole season is going to be a success or a failure. And I'm not measuring success purely as killing an animal, but for this particular conversation, let's, let's use success as getting that animal that you've been putting all this work into. It all comes down to that one shot. And people assume because of all my, you know, target shooting championships and all that stuff, they assume that I shoot a long ways and I don't. And, and, and there's a reason I could, you know, because again, I can, you know, I can consistently, and, and again, this is in my backyard with no wind. And I can consistently shoot very, very well at very, very long distances with my broadhead set up. However, I will not on, on, on an animal that I've scouted or any animal for that matter, but I have a hard and fast rule that I don't shoot past 60 yards um, because, you know, I've got so much time invested in this animal and the last thing I want to do is wound him or miss him because these are smart old deer. And, and if you wound him or miss him, it's done. You're done for the season. You know, you're going to have to go to your number two deer, hopefully if you can find them. But so this does tie in a little bit to, to working on your shooting because you guys spend so much time, all the intricacies of, 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 and I don't even know the half of it, what you guys do to get, position yourself in the right place at the right time to get a shot at this one deer and yet 
these guys that do this and and i'm friends with a lot of extremely successful bow hunters um and i'll shoot with them and i'm sometimes i'm just baffled at at how the issues they have in their shooting and they spend literally thousands of hours a year uh, hundreds of hours a year uh, doing everything else but they're not willing to go to a shooting coach and improve their shooting so that when they do get this opportunity they can kill it i've got a, a good friend jack frost he's one of the best bow hunters of, of all times and 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 i'm not picking on him well i guess i am a little bit but he'll pick on himself <laughs> um, jack is probably the best hunter certainly one of the top five hunters i know of all time um and jack will tell you that if he could shoot better he would have had multiple world, world records but he 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 will admit that he's not the best shot in the world and and you know jack is a jack is a orthopedic surgeon he's an incredibly intelligent individual but i don't know if jack's ever gone to a shooting coach but it's just you know he likes hunting and he likes he actually likes shooting but the thing is, is, is he's told me that, yeah, if I could shoot better, I would have all these world records. So my point is take some time and study and shoot, join a target league, get a coach. And then when you do have that one opportunity, you're not going to blow it. Yeah. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. 
Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store system, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. So so let's go there then. Let's talk about shooting practicing making sure that you don't blow that moment if we've, if we've got our form we we know the right way to to be operating our bow we know the right setup for our bow we know certain things we need to do to control the mental side now we've got to just get out there practice enough that this that this stuff is is part of who we are i first am curious about one simple thing that being how much practice is enough like there's some people i know pretty darn good hunters who don't touch their bow until like a month before the season. And then they grab their bow and they'll shoot, you know, a dozen arrows a couple times a week. And then they're like, oh yeah, I'm good to go. And they're, and they're great. And then there's some people who say, oh, I shoot a lot. And maybe they shoot from July into the season. And then they shoot a couple times here and there during the season. And then you hear other people who shoot all year round. And they say, you've got to shoot every day, all year round to really be good at this. Um, what's, what's the truth of the matter, Randy? What do you think is is the bar that someone who really wants to be extremely proficient, what's the bar they need to pass as far as how often and how, you know, how, how much practice is needed to really be proficient at this? Okay. So remember this perfect practice makes perfect. And, uh, it, it, it's very, very true. Okay. When I was winning my world championships, I was, I was working as a veterinarian 60 hours a week. I did not have time to practice every day. It just wasn't in my schedule. I shot anywhere from 30 to 60 arrows every other day. And my competitors were shooting two to 300 arrows a day. The key is, we'll go back to what I said earlier. The key is every day that I, let's say I had an hour and a half to practice every other day. I wrote down what my issues were, what I needed to work on that day. And 
let's say I was working on um, relaxing my front hand, which was is an issue with everybody all the time, constantly, because instinctually your front hand of, of your bow is 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 incredibly hard to relax perfectly every shot. But I would let's say I'm working on that. Well, during my practice session, that is my top priority is to focus and work on my practice uh, on that hand. But, you know, you don't let everything else go, but you are focused on that. And I would shoot my 30 to 60 arrows and they would be perfect arrows. And the other thing that I did is, and I still do it to this day, is I shoot at least my first five arrows and my last five arrows at a blank bell with my eyes closed. And I know that just sounds completely whacked to people that don't understand. But what it does is it teaches you, and it has to be something that you teach yourself. You're kind of like an alcoholic. It's one day at a time. (laughs) You have to teach yourself over and over and over again what a perfectly relaxed, perfectly executed surprise release shot feels like what it actually feels like when you've got a target involved in the equation you quit thinking about what's going on with your body you start thinking about the execution of the pin when the when the pins on the target and everything else kind of goes way back into the background by shooting with your eyes closed you 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 teach yourself what a perfectly executed shot feels like a perfectly executed shot feels really good so I get myself in the groove for a perfectly executed shot. And if I'm not feeling it, I'll shoot 15 or 20 arrows at the blank bell just till until I can feel that perfect shot. And the same thing at the end of my practice session. So to an- I haven't answered your question. If you've got a lot of time, then yes, practice a lot. But you cannot practice mediocrity or you're going to be mediocre. Don't just go out there and fling arrows. And what happens is if you go out and shoot 100 arrows, pretty soon you're just going to be flinging arrows. You're not focused on the perfect shot. I'd much rather you shoot 10 shots every other day and have those shots be perfect shots than to practice 200 arrows every day. So that's probably the difference between the two individuals you put on each end of the spectrum. If, if okay, my son Levi he wanted to be a target shooter, you know, before he discovered girls when he was from 13 to 15. And, um, he, he, we, you know, we went to the nationals and to Vegas and all the big tournaments and Levi, a very, very, very good student listener. He did everything exactly like I told him. He never learned. He never was able to develop bad habits because he because I, I coached him from the very beginning and I coached him from the very beginning with a, you know, once he once he put away his recurve bow shooting with fingers just to watch the arrow fly and he, he wanted to shoot a compound bow. I, I put him on a hinge release. The kids never developed a bad habit because he's never had the opportunity to. Levi has killed. OK, he's 20. By the time he was 19. He had killed six bull elk 
you know, in the 350 plus class. Joe, it's just because Jeez. he lives in Arizona and I was hunting with him. Um, he has never, <laughs> he has never shot. He's never missed at an animal and he's never, it's never taken, well, no animal he's ever shot at has gone more than 70 yards. Okay. He, my, my whole point here, I'm bragging on him. He's my son, but my whole point is he and I are going on a caribou hunt in August. My whole point is he can pick up his bow because he has no have bad habits. He will come, he's coming up to Colorado here shortly and he will pick up his bow and the very first shot at 20 yards, I can guarantee it after he hasn't shot all year since last hunting season, his very first shot at 20 years, yards will be in the yellow at, on a Vegas face. It's just phenomenal because he has no bad habits and his form is perfect. And if you're capable of having, if, if you've learned perfect form and you've not developed any bad habits, you don't have to practice very much, but that is not the average shooter. The average shooter has bad habits and has to practice a lot. The more bad habits you have, the more you have to practice because uh, you're kind of just, you're kind of just hoping for that magic and you have to kind of form that magic by practicing a lot. It's kind of like recurve shooters, you know, that don't use sights or anything else have to practice all the time because they kind of have to get in that magic groove. If you have perfect form with a compound and you're using a sight and a, and a peep sight, you, it's kind of like shooting a gun. Seriously. You don't really have, like if I were to go rifle hunting, which I haven't done in 30 years, but if I were to go rifle hunting, I just go to the range, shoot three shots and say, I, I, I'm good to go. Because really, there's nothing to it. If you have perfect archery shooting form, it's, it's basically the same thing. There's really not much to it. You know, if you're fit, and my son is very, very fit. He's very, yeah. very fit. I was going to ask and about you have that. To the fitness to be able to hold your bow back. Like how important is the specific like archery muscles in keeping that set of muscles toned and in good shape? I mean, I've always wondered, like, I'm, I'm not, like the super weightlifter upper body dude. I'm a runner. And I've always thought if I were to really get into weightlifting or doing something, would that really help me? Or or is it not that important other than just shooting your bow? I mean, how important is that side of things? And, and does that factor into how accurate you can actually be down the line? It, it, def it definitely does. Like when I was shooting, and even nowadays, when I, when I was shooting competitively, I would work on my archery muscles or are, are, are are not used, archery muscles are very specific. The muscles you use to pull back the bow and hold the bow back are very specific. And and that is one thing I would say about practicing that, that you do need to do. And when I was shooting um, at my highest level of competition, I would work on those specific muscles every other day. Um, and even now, one of the things that I do and I've always done is at the end of every practice session, if I have the time, uh, I'll pull my bow back to exhaustion. And I'm by doing that, I'm working on the very specific muscles that are used to pull back and hold the bow. And it's very simple because, you know, let's say I shoot 30 shots. My average practice session is about, nowadays is about 20 to 30, maybe 40 shots. At the end of that, I don't want to be, I don't want to have to shoot so many shots to keep my archery muscles strong and in shape uh, that I'm, you know, practicing mediocrity. 
I practice really good shots. But then at the end, in order to get the equivalent workout of shooting, you know, say 100 shots, I pull my bow back to exhaustion. What I mean is my hunting bow, I can usually pull it back 15 to 20 times uh, in a row. Um, and then once I pulled it back as many times as I can, I'll hold it up for as long, hold it back and hold it up as long as I can. And what that's doing is training those specific muscles. And there's really nothing better than that. Uh, but, but, but to answer your question, it is important. If those muscles aren't strong, then you're going to shake. And by having those muscles stronger than they need to be, um, you're, you're, you're going to have a much steadier shot. And also, you know, there, we all get in this situation. It's not as bad now that the bows have such a great let off as it used to be when the bows had 50% let off, but you're going to get in a situation where you draw your bow back and the deer is behind a tree and he stays back there for 45 seconds. And, uh, if your muscles aren't in really, really good shape, you're going to be shaking like a dog, uh, when he steps out. Yeah. Hey, Randy, on that, on that note, is there a, is there sort of a counter argument there for, uh, not being overbowed? You know, I mean, I think a lot of people want to get really manly with, you know, shooting 70 pounds, but they might be more, way more comfortable and relaxed shooting 60 and it really wouldn't matter in the deer woods anyway. Absolutely. It's, it's madness when I see these guys shooting these really, really heavy bows, because no matter who you are, you, you can't shoot a really, really heavy bow as well as you can a bow with a lighter draw length, a draw weight. Um, and really, especially for, for white tail hunters, I mean, 50 pounds is plenty, but the average man, you know, the average, whatever, 30, 40, 50 year old man can shoot 60 pounds pretty comfortably. And if you can't, you know, just a little bit of, of, of working out will do it. But yeah, you're going to get in situations where you have to hold the bow back for a long period of time or where you're really cold and are in an awkward position and can't draw the bow back. So th that's absolutely critical. Uh, I like, I like a few of these things you've outlined here as far as what you're practice sessions look like you know the the working those muscles at the end holding back as long as you can drawing back as many times as you can until you ex until you reach exhaustion you mentioned blind bail shooting at the beginning and the end uh but can you elaborate on anything else to make for this perfect practice session because i think that was a really key point like perfect practice is is what we're going for here but i think what the average person does myself included a lot of the time is you fall into this autopilot of you go behind the house, you fling your 20, 30 arrows or whatever, your mind's kind of this place and that place, and it's kind of therapeutic and fun, but but like you said, probably not the most effective use of your time. So other than those two things you outlined and just being focused, what else can you do to make for that perfect practice session? Or are there any other specific exercises or drills that we can do to help us address some of the problems we spoke for me, if I'll shoot my air, and this is, you know, very, very, very few people do this, but if you'll do it, you'll see such great rewards and cause it's boring, but shooting with your eyes closed, you know, once you have good shooting form, shooting with your eyes closed and feeling the shot is just phenomenal because you, what will happen is you'll realize the things that you're doing wrong when you're shooting with your eyes closed and, and you don't even realize it. The second thing in practice is be honest with yourself. And if something's going wrong, figure out what it is and then be honest with yourself about how to address it. 
And then you have to address it full on and work on it and make it better. It's not going to get better all on its own. Like if one day you go out and then you're just occasionally getting a miss to the left and you can't explain it, figure it the hell out. Don't say, oh, you know, it's just probably me. Well, it is you. <laughs> and a lot of people say, oh, it's just me. I'm just doing something to the bow today. Figure out what you're doing to the bow and why you're doing it and eliminate it. And then work on that in a specific practice session. Work, spend your practice sessions working on your issues, on the issues that are keeping you from being a better shot. And it takes discipline. It takes mental discipline. Because shooting bow is fun. It's supposed to be fun. And, 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 it, and it will be fun. And trust me, the better you shoot, the funner it is. But it takes a little bit of mental discipline. And if you don't want to do it, if you just want to shoot your bow, that's fine. But if you do want to get better, you have to have mental discipline and, and figure out what you're doing wrong, why you're doing it, and then figure out a way to resolve the issue. Yeah. Can you walk me through your shot process? Like what it looks like? And, and maybe I'm curious if it's in any way different from the practice session versus in the field, but could you walk me through like, every step in your process and what thoughts are going through your mind and what's you, actually you happening in physically a in, a, in, at, in my backyard or do you want to shoot me in a buck? Well, I guess I'd like to know, are those two different and in some substantial way other than the obvious they, reality? They, they are, they are because of what you mentioned earlier, buck fever. So let's talk about both then. Could you do that? Yeah. Well, in practice sessions, it's really easy. I've been shooting both for so long that that it's just everything's natural i don't even think about my shooting process uh to speak of when i'm shooting uh my main thing is once i've got the bow to full draw my 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 um my uh, i have a little mantra and i use like when i'm shooting just on, on day and, and and that is just relaxation 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 patience 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 and what that's doing for me, because I'm shooting most of the time, I'm shooting the hinge release. It's just waiting for the bow to go off and aim, aim, aim. And you're just letting the pin float around the target. And you're, you're, the relaxation part is critical. So it's relaxation, patience, aim, aim, aim. It's just letting, you're just aim. All you're doing is, is, is aiming and remaining what people tend to do when they think of aiming and holding the pin on the spot is they think of grabbing the bow, controlling the bow, and holding it on that spot as tight as they can, uh, and shooting when the uh, pin goes by the, the 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 center of the bullseye. Well, mm-hmm. what I do is I try to continually think about relaxation. Now, yeah, I'm, I'm I. I I don't focus really on all the other parts, but I probably should go through them for the listeners. Uh, but yeah, it's if you want to start at the beginning, it's putting your feet in the right position. You know, typically for me, it's shoulder width apart, and I shoot with a little bit of open stance, meaning that uh, you know my left foot's a little bit away from that perfect line. It's way back, a little bit back from that perfect line, straight to the target. And for me everything's natural because I've done it, but basically it's putting your hand. I usually try to rest the bow, um, on my leg, put my hand, I'm, I'm, my release is hooked up. Uh, I'm putting, I, I kind of put my hand into the bow as the bow is at about a 45 degree angle. And I'm trying to find that sweet spot 
where the bow will, will again get in that center part of those two bones of the forearm. Um, and it goes there very naturally for me. But then it's, it's, it's lifting the bow up. And I try not to sky the bow, meaning I don't lift the bow above, you know, above the level of the target much. And then pulling the bow back. And, and again, not moving my face to the string, but bringing the bow straight back to the string anchoring and again be careful with that word anchoring because it's not a rock solid anchor point but it's a, a point that comes back naturally and there's very little contact with skin and if 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 i've done that properly my peep will be right in the center of my eye and 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 on the and and on the uh on all the and the pin will be in the center of the peep then i really focus on relaxing everything and and most people don't, but it's just so important that you think if you think about relaxing your face and relaxing your hands, the rest of your body will follow suit. And again, what you're trying to do is you're trying to relax all the muscles that aren't used in the shot process. And I try to maintain, and I, I, again, this term really kind of bothers me. It's, it's, it's called back tension, but, but it's not really tension. You don't want a lot of tension, but, but the muscles I don't want to be holding the bow back with the muscles of my arm. I want to be holding the bow back with the muscles that are closest to my spine, like the rhomboids and, and all the teres minors, all, all, the, all the tiny muscles that are back there uh, uh, along your spine. They, they, they are much more stable than, say, the muscles of your arm. So I'm trying to hold my bow back with my back instead of with my arm. And it'll be much more stable. And if I need to move the bow to the left or to the right or up and down, I don't move my hand, my, my bow hand. I do it with my back muscles, like I'm right-handed. So I do it with the muscles of the right-hand muscles of my back. I move left, right, up, down, so that my form is always perfect in alignment. I don't move my bow hand to, to put the pin on the target. Then I just focus on relaxation aiming, squeezing, and surprise release, and then follow through. And follow through, a lot of people will think they have really good follow through when they shoot their bow and their bow doesn't even move. Now, that means that they've incorporated muscles exactly at the moment of the shot. They've activated muscles and you right. definitely don't want to do that. You Naturally, a big part of what is holding the bow up is you holding the bow back at full draw. So naturally, when you shoot, the bow is going to fall away. If the bow doesn't fall away and it stays in position, you're not following through properly. It looks like a good follow through, but it's not. The bow has to fall away or you're incorporating muscles during the shot that you shouldn't incorporate. So follow through is important as well. That's... uh. That's, I guess the the next question then is, what does that look or how does that look different than in the field? You mentioned that there are some different parts there, and or something happening. Well, in the field, in the field, I'm always talking to myself. Um, when when I draw back in the field at let's say a big buck, I I uh, I'm telling myself my form is natural. It's just comes. I don't even think about any part of my form. 
Um, but what I do think about constantly is pick a spot. And I know that's like the fundamental first thing everyone learns uh, when they're going to be a bow hunter is pick a spot, pick a spot. But it's so important. I tell myself, pick the right pen, use the right pen, use the right pen, pick a spot, pick a spot. Patience, patience, patience. I tell myself patience because I do not want to hurry the shot. Um, and and that's the biggest thing because the, the thing that's going to cause you the most problems or the most misses is if you hurry the shot. And so I want to make sure my I'm using the right pen, and I always I always range fine unless it's within you know under thirty yards. But I will, I say pick the right pen and put it in the exact right spot. Patience, 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 and and that helped me to stick with the shot to the very end and that's the key most people miss especially you know at a at a big buck or something they're very excited about shooting they miss because they hurry that situation so my whole goal in in shooting at a game animal is is sticking with the shot having patience letting it be a surprise release yeah i know you mentioned earlier that you haven't really had issues with target panic at all but do you ever still get physically excited? Like, do you, you know, I guess what I'm getting at is some people that have issues with buck fever or excitement, they talk about controlling your breathing or deep breathing or anything like that to try to calm yourself or to try to regain control. Is there anything like that you ever do or is that even not even of need for you? Oh, no, I get extremely excited. Um, what I tell myself is, and I did the same thing, like it, at really big tournaments, let's say a shoot off. I used to try to tell myself, Oh no, no big deal. It's just, this is just a, and just pretend like it's in the backyard. Well, every fiber of your being, no, it's not, knows it's not the backyard. So what I've done that really works well for me is I tell myself, yeah, I'm as nervous as hell. I'm scared shitless. Uh, excuse me for that. <laughs> but that's okay. basically <laughs> it's, uh, I tell myself, yeah, I'm going to, you know, when I'm sneaking up on a buck, I go, man, I am going to be a mess when I draw back on this bow. But what I tell myself is I'm going to make the very best shot I can in spite of the fact that, 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 you know, I'm excited as can be. And what that does from that actually kind of calms me down. I, I'm going to make the very best shot. I'm going to be shaken. I shake a little bit on every deer I shoot at almost. Um, and I say, yeah, I'm going to be shaken, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to execute the very best shot I can. And if you punch the trigger, you can't do that. Uh, if you get have a surprise release, you can do that because you're sitting there, you're thinking, I'm thinking, stay with the shot, stay with the shot, patience, patience, patience. And I'm shaking, but I'm still sticking with the shot. I am not going to punch that trigger and screw it up. And it, it seems like, something you've mentioned I've heard from a lot of other people too it seems to be a pretty consistent uh, uh, factor in being able to handle these moments is that self-talk is that that mantra or that that voice in your head that's keeping you in like you said in the shots keeping you in the moments keeping you in control it, it seems like that's not a trivial thing no it's well and, and it's it's what's really helped me because you know I can look back 30 years ago when I was first trying to shoot big mule deer, I would get on one, a good mule deer or something. And, and literally from the time I hooked my release up till the deer ran away, I couldn't remember any of it. 
And it was like, wow, what happened? I don't know what happened. I mean, the very first six point bull I ever shot at, I missed by two feet at 20 yards. Um, and to this day, all I remember is the air. He was on top of a ridge and I was on top of the ridge. All I remember is the arrow sailing way down into the canyon and me thinking, what in the world just happened? And it was just a complete buck fever blank out. And so through the years, I gradually said, you know, yeah. yeah I, and I didn't have any self-talk. I, I just pulled back and shot. Now, in order to keep myself present in the moment, I have to have this self-talk. And my self-talk is pick a spot, make sure you're the right pin. And if you're focusing on the method, on actually the, 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 the process, if you're focusing on the, and, and not so much on like the process of, you know, making sure your anchor's right and all that stuff. If you shot enough, that should be completely instinctual. The problem people get into is the patience part. They want that arrow gone and they want it gone right now. Cause there's so much anticipation and so much stress and anxiety. You just want the moment over with. So self-talk makes me stay in the moment. Okay. Okay. Do you know exactly how far the deer is? Where are you going to, okay, let's say it's 45 yards. Where are you going to put your 40 yard pin? Okay. You can aim right there. And then once you're at full draw, you're sitting there going patience, 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 you know, aim, aim, aim. And then all of a sudden the arrow's gone and you know, you've made a good shot, but you're going to shake. You're, you're, you're never shooting at a big buck. If someone tells you, well, there's been a few that I've shot at where for some reason, I didn't shake a lot. And usually it's if they're further distances at 50 or 60 yards. Um, and I have a lot of time to, to get everything in order, but, um, you know, if it's happening fairly quickly and, and, uh, they're fairly close, you're, you're going to shake. And, and so you have to, so, okay, I'm going to be shaken. That's okay. If shaking is going to be okay, if I execute a good shot with good form. Yeah. I find so, that encouraging. I find it encouraging that you still get excited, that you still shake, that you still are mortal. I think everyone listening should find that encouraging and to know that if you can have this process though, and if you can execute that surprise release, it's okay to be a human. <laughs> well, and that's why, that's why, uh, the, a couple of severe cases that I've worked with that really literally were thinking about giving up bow hunting. There's a guy, very, very good hunt, hunter that he, he didn't actually call me. A, a mutual friend of ours called me and said, "Hey, he's he's going to just quit bow hunting. He's going to start hunting with a rifle." And uh, anyway, I talked to him and and uh, went through the whole um, hinge release process with him, and and he's completely back to normal. He he hunts with a hinge, which isn't ideal, but still he's able to execute a good shot. Uh, and, and, and what the hinge does again, is it makes you, it forces you to stay in the moment. It forces you to stay in the moment and stay with the shot till the very end, which is why index finger releases are so bad is because they allow you just a second your pin gets on that deer, you, you shoot, you haven't thought about much of anything. You just want the whole process over with, which is fine if you're 20 or 30 yards away, but. It doesn't work very well, you know, on a difficult shot. Yeah. 
Tony, what do you, what do you got over there? Uh, two things. I, I, I also love listening to Randy talk about his mistakes because it makes me feel better. Yep. <laughs> uh, so, I, Randy, I could listen to well, you talk uh, about you guys, if you ever need to, If you ever need me to uh, make you feel better, I'll give you some psychotherapy. I'll just tell you about <laughs> all my mistakes, things I wouldn't dare mention on a pad- podcast. And you'll feel so good about yourself that you're just, your self-esteem will be sky high. Yeah, I might need that. I might need that after last year. <laughs> I I love it. The, the other thing that I, I want to bring up here, Randy, because you, you haven't really touched on this, uh, but you, you've talked a lot about rushing the shot. We know we know the anticipation's huge and, you know, it's a, a big part of, you know, losing losing that ground between your ears when you when you need to just keep it together for a little bit. But is, what I'm curious with you is with your like vast experience hunting a bunch of different game and you know you've killed enormous animals throughout your career have you just learned you know like when you're talking about how you tell yourself to be patient and you're going through your kind of pre-shot routine and talking to yourself you've also probably just learned that even when it feels like it should be a really rushed situation you you almost always have more time even when you call in a bull or you know it's maybe a rutting buck that's cruising past pretty quickly and I think a lot of people look at that and go, man, I've only got, you know, a couple seconds to make this happen. And if you look at the difference between executing a bad shot in three seconds or a great shot in 10, you probably almost always have that 10. Well, you just, you just said it all for me, really. Um, it's a numbers game. And what I found is if, if I rush them, first of all, well, I've learned this because, uh, okay, 30 years ago, you know, if there was a decent bull or a decent buck, I was just going to shoot it. Okay. Now I spend so much time finding that one animal that, that if he gets away, it's no big deal. I mean, it's a big deal, but if he gets away and I don't shoot, I'll, I'll get on him tomorrow or the next day or the next day. And back then I didn't have as much time as I do now. You know, I, I kind of needed to get things done because I was, I was working full time as a veterinarian, had kids and all that kind of stuff um, and needed to get back. But now I have more time and that's that's a luxury a lot of people don't have. But now I've I've discovered that I am much better off waiting for a good shot. And a relaxed shot. And if the animal gets away, then fine. And I've had this happen many times. This, I'm, you know, and people that may be watching from a distance with binoculars going, why in the hell didn't you shoot? Because it wasn't perfect. And, and, and again, it's because I'm hunting one animal, but it's true. And you said it really well. It's very true that, that, okay, let's take a hundred situations where you think you have to shoot within four or five seconds. Now out of that hundred, hundred, hundred situations, you know, you're going to miss that shot or wound the animal maybe 30 times because you brushed a shot. Now, say out of those hundred times you go, okay, I'm going to wait for a better shot. I would say 70% of the time, you're at least 70% of the time, you're going to get a better shot and a more relaxed shot. And, and even, and the key is, is even if you don't shoot, then you're going to get another opportunity at the animal. But if you wound him, or with these really older age class animals, if you shoot at them and miss, you're pretty much done for, for a long time. So the numbers are with you, 
in being, and you're also a more ethical bow hunter, which is really important to me, uh, especially as a veterinarian. You know, I, I don't mind harvesting an animal, but I don't ever want to wound an animal. I, I do everything in my power not to wound an animal. It's just not fair. So if you keep ethical considerations in mind and, and actually just the, it's a numbers game, just a numbers game. You're much better off waiting for a better shot. You almost always are. Can't argue with that. I think, Randy, this has been phenomenal. I mean, this is this is everything I could have hoped for for an opening conversation in this series. Um, and I have, I have like a a physical, uh, just like charge right now to get out and shoot my bow. And and as we've been talking, I'm just like thinking about how great it's going to be in September on that first hunt, having this perfect in control shot. And making that come to fruition, I, uh, that's the kind of thing I'm imagining already today. It's got me wanting to go grab my bow right now and and just make it happen. So uh, thank you. Thank you for this, Randy. You bet. I'm going to leave you with one word, and that's discipline. You have to have discipline to get better. <laughs> so true. Is there anything that you would want? Do you want to leave folks with any uh, call to action? Is there anywhere you want them to go to to read some of your stuff or to see any of your past content or any future projects or anything folks should know about? No, no, no. I'm, you know, uh, no, if they, they're certainly, I mean, in, in, I have a column in every issue of Bowhunter and Peterson's Bowhunting. Uh, Then I just write about shooting and, and life experiences, but no, there's no call to action. Really, really, if you want to get better, have discipline, there's so many more resources now than there were 20 years ago. Uh, you just have to be a little careful because they're there. They're, most of the content online is really good, but there's some of it that's, that's a little whacked. So you have to be a little careful. Yeah. Like that Tony Peterson stuff. Well, you know, he's a hunter. <laughs> you can't expect much out of him. <laughs> Keep uh, expectations uh, low. They, they, did name, they did name the magazine after him. I mean, there must be something. Yeah. yeah, and then they fired me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and on that note, the perfect way to end all podcasts by razzing Tony. Uh, we're going we're well, to wrap this guys, one up. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks, Randy. Absolute blast. Thanks, Randy. All right, and that is a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. Best of luck to all of you out there on the range because I'm sure you've got your bow in hand here soon. You'll be out there flinging some arrows. I've been doing the same thing. This is good stuff, and there's more to come this month. So get ready. Shooting month continues soon. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved 
via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.